This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Dawn Porter, documentary filmmaker whose work has appeared on ESPN, HBO, Netflix, PBS, and other streamers. Her film Trapped, focusing on abortion clinics in the South, won a special prize at Sundance in 2016. She is also the director of John Lewis' Good Trouble, which focuses on the late congressman and activist. Her most recent projects are The Lady Bird Diaries, which was shown at SXSW Film Festival, and the four-part documentary series Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, which airs on Showtime starting September 23rd. Dawn Porter will be appearing live at Berkeley Art Museum Pacific Film Archive on September 21st, 22nd, and 23rd to discuss her work on September 21st with the Lady Bird Diaries and September 23rd with Gideon's Army. See BAMPFA.org for the times and details of the events. Dawn Porter, before we start the interview, let me ask you, uh, the WGA is currently on strike and you're promoting your work here. What is your relationship with the WGA that allows you to do this? And thanks for having me. And um, of course, I strongly support artist independence and artist representation. So as a documentary director, I'm a member of the DGA and we signed our agreement and we are able to fully work. I'm not a member of the WGA or the PGA. So that, that's why we're allowed to, to work. So I guess, you know, there's uh, some benefits you get from being in the big fancy unions. And then there's some things where little people can just do our little things. So they don't care about us. <laughs> they do care about us, but uh, we signed our agreement. We bargained in good faith and we came to an agreement that we think is fair and reasonable. This is being recorded on September 11th. 2023. And a lot of your work involves documentaries about the civil rights movement. And I I always wondered about this, but I've never asked anyone, is there any relationship that you can see between 9-11 and the events that happened afterward and the civil rights movement? Oh, yeah. You know, if I think about the time before 9-11, and it seems kind of funny to say this now, but we were innocent in such a way. You know, I, I went to law school, I lived right down the street from the US Capitol. And you used to be able to drive your car, right, you know, all the way over (laughs) to the Capitol, able to walk right in. You know, so I think that what the civil rights movement did and is continuing to do, by the way, didn't end in 1968, is have us all be more focused on the need to be vigilant and uh, participants in the guarantee of our rights. And so, you know, I think about that in all of my work, but I also think, you know, one of the the, the many dark sides of 9-11 is the Islamophobia that resulted from it is the prejudice and the stereotyping. Civil rights is for everybody. And, uh, you know, regardless of your ethnicity. And I think the hard fought gains, particularly for African Americans, but for other minorities, I think we need to be cognizant and vigilant about preserving those as well. 
John Porter, let's talk a little about the two projects that are right in focus now. The Ladybird Diaries, the first one. How did you learn about these diaries? How did you manage to get hold of them to create a documentary about the life of Lady Bird Johnson in her own words during her, the years of the Johnson presidency? Well, I used to work for ABC News, and um, so I have a long kind of relationship with ABC News. And the person, I also worked with Jackie Glover, who was the documentary commissioning person for HBO for many years. Jackie actually commissioned my first film, Gideon's Army, about three public defenders working in the Deep South. Jackie was working for ABC Studios, and she, they had, ABC News had done this podcast called The Ladybird Diaries based on the diaries and based on this book uh, by Julia Swag. And so Jackie, we'd known each other for a long time, and she knew that I had done John Lewis film but I'd also done a series about Bobby Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy for president for, for Netflix. And so she just called me up and she said, you know, we have this podcast. Jackie's always thinking about what could be their next film and what could be, you know, things that ABC was working on that could be turned into a film. And she said, do you think this could be a movie? And I said, well, I don't know. Let me take a look at the podcast. Let me read the book because I had the experience of working on Bobby Kennedy and I knew how much archive there was, I thought, well, the way to kind of make this come to life is if there's a lot of archive, obviously Lady Bird's no longer with us. And then I just creatively, I didn't want to just do your standard talking heads, you know, kind of film, but really, really cemented it was we started, we always do like archival research to see what we're dealing with. And we started looking into what was available. You know, you just enter the search term, Lady Bird Johnson. We got back two pages, two pages about the first lady of the United States. That's not possible, right? So then we put in Mrs. Johnson, more. President's wife, Johnson, more. That noise. She is going to speak for herself without any talking heads. And so I kind of took it as a challenge. Like, can we tell this story with only Lady Bird's words and the pictures we found? And, you know, as a woman, it was so fascinating and enraging to me that when we started trying to pair her diaries with archive, there was lots of images of Claudia Johnson. Just many times she was not mentioned in the archival. And so we just had to look through everything we were interested in. And so in a lot of ways, you know, this is, um, this is to let Lady Bird have the last word about her own life. Um, so that's what we did. I noticed in the documentary that there were many times where she's standing behind people. So you had to find those based on the people she's standing behind, not her. You know, um, I had the most amazing producer, Kim Reynolds, um, and editor, Ben Swag, and also researcher who worked on Julia Swag's book. So our researcher, like your researcher is really so key for you because that's the person who's combing 
through all of the documents and combing through all the images. And, you know, we were able to use the dates. So, so of course, Lady Bird saw a tremendous amount of things and she spoke right. about a tremendous amount of things. So the first thing we had to do was kind of figure out like, what's the through line? What's the story? And because as you mentioned, I'm interested in civil rights, I'm interested in women's rights. And so I was interested in where her life intersected and where, what she could tell us about those experiences. So we were looking for particular moments in history. You know, one thing I had no idea about was that she took that train ride through the South to campaign for LBJ. And when you think about that, like how remarkable that she took this whistle stop tour by herself <laughs> through a very hostile white Southern society. And LBJ sends her, you know, he says, she's my best ambassador, but he sends her for a very strategic reason. We all know that JFK wins the presidency in large part because of the black vote. LBJ needs to keep that black vote. And so he needs to appeal to those voters, not alienate them, but you can't win with the black vote alone. He needs to get some white Southerners. And so he sends his white Southern wife, but he sends her in a hostile territory. And I'd have to think that he sent her knowing that she could get the job done. And of course she does. There's also the incident later on uh, involving Vietnam, where she's confronted by protesters and what we learn in the documentary is that behind the scenes, Lyndon was very unhappy with what was going on. He was not a warmonger. He may have followed warmonger people in what he did, but he was not happy about that. And she had to deal with that. Was that surprising to you? You know, it it wasn't as surprising as it was it would be for some folks, but only because I had done a movie about John F. Kennedy, about um, Bobby Kennedy, and about John Lewis. And so I heard what Lyndon Johnson was saying about the war. I knew how closely, you know, he was aligned with civil rights, and I knew how he struggled with the decisions around Vietnam. And so I never, you know, and I wasn't born then, so I didn't have that emotional connection. I didn't have the experience of being a citizen watching Johnson send young men to war, which of course would make you angry and frustrated. I'm sure that I would have been out there protesting, you know, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? I'm sure those would, you know, those are my politics. So to see and to hear Lyndon Johnson's great depression and anxiety and, and over, you know, what he felt like was his only option. I mean, I think, I think that that's important for us to know. And, you know, when you think about Lady Bird confronting the, the protesters, you see, once again, she's on her own confronting those protesters. She does it, you know, she doesn't like it, but she does it. And then I think you also, what you also see in that though, is you see the Johnsons as people, you see them as a married couple, you see them, it's a great love story. She, some of her not so fine moments come when she's defending her husband, you know, when she's dealing with Eartha Kitt, neither of them looks too great in that, <laughs> in that setting. And I think Lady Bird was really sensitive about uh, the critique of Johnson because she knew how he suffered over sending men to war. And, uh, I think it's a great tragedy that so much of what he was able to accomplish politically is overshadowed 
by the horrible legacy of, of Vietnam. And then we learn later, of course, that, and it's not in the documentary, that he actually was coming close to a resolution when Nixon interfered and Henry Kissinger in particular, and suddenly the war was back on and Nixon was elected. It's kind of stunning years later because I was a protester, you know, and then to learn what exactly was going on kind of changes things. And I think that's part of what you do in your work is you change things. You know, we see something new. Well, I think that's a great compliment. But I think, you know, we're all hopefully learning and growing and history should not be calcified. You know, I was reading today about the second bullet found in, you know, JFK's car, um, you know, so that it maybe gives some credence to the idea that there is a second, you know, uh, gun operator. And I'm not a conspiracy person, but I think it's important for us to always be examining our history with our contemporary eyes. And that's why I think it's so dangerous what people like Ron DeSantis are doing by attempting to censor history. And they're attempting to rewrite it in a way that hides our flaws. And, you know, what's that quote? Like, if you don't learn your history, you're doomed to repeat it. And so think about how important it is for us to know how Johnson was trying to handle the war, that he was trying to get to a resolution that could have saved so many lives. You know, if you know that history earlier, maybe it prevents some other presidents from making equally tragic decisions. You're listening to an interview with documentary filmmaker Dawn Porter. Her documentary series, Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, can be found on Showtime Paramount Plus starting September 23rd. Dawn Porter will be appearing live at Berkeley Art Museum Pacific Film Archive September 21st, 22nd, and 23rd, along with two of her films. You can find out more by going to bampfa.org. As I was watching the Ladybird Diaries, I began getting nostalgia for a time when there was a lot more respect for truth. I mean, what I'm seeing now, the the only sign of what was to come is a nasty quote by Barry Goldwater, uh, if you remember that, in the documentary. And that's it. But the rest of it, it seems that we were living in a kinder time, even despite the riots in in the cities, even despite Vietnam. I mean, that was my take. Do you have a similar take? I think that's really, really interesting, particularly given that you were, you know, a self-described protester of the time. And I think it's really instructive. My sense of it is there was a, a little bit less artifice in some of the political dealings. And I, I certainly think that there was more, there were some unlikely alliances uh, working on behalf of the country and not only for personal political power. But, you know, I think one of our great American traditions is presenting the picture that we want people to see. And so I don't think that that has necessarily changed. I think what 
has changed is it's so easy to construct an image that's not accurate. And so we have to be even more vigilant about getting to a truth. John Porter, before we go on to deadlock, that brings up a question that was in the back of my mind for the end of the interview, which is that when we watch documentaries, documentaries are created through editing. And at one end, there's documentaries that try to show multiple sides, in particular, what I'm reading about in the New York Times about deadlocked. On the other hand, we have things like Plandemic. We have you know, the entire Apprentice series, which presents a portrait of Donald Trump that is basically a lie. So in the Times article, you do say that it's important to be transparent. So my question to you isn't about you, but about the the watcher of documentaries. How do we look for transparency to understand that what we're seeing is real? You know, some of the way that you can evaluate transparency is not necessarily in the film. It's, you know, kind of knowing who's making the film. So if we know something about the people who made that, you know, what's that that big fiction movie that, you know, made $100 million, um, you know, if you know something about where people are coming from. But uh, one way that you can tell is how the subjects are treated. So, you know, I hope that what you'll see in Deadlocked is we have a number of conservative who are self-identified conservatives who appear in the series. So we have Don Ayers, who was a Justice Department official in the Reagan administration. We have Ted Olson, you know, the the lawyer who represented soon-to-be President Bush and Bush v. Gore. We have um, John Bash, who was a law clerk for uh, Justice Scalia. And, and I think that I, I hope that what you'll see is those voices are, are, are treated with respect that they deserve, are, are, are given the opportunity to, to give you know, their impressions about what's happening with the court, about what's happened in the country. And so I think that as a viewer, watch how the interviews are treated. Are some people given more chance to explain? Are their voices missing entirely? Are there things that just don't seem to be well thought out? Um, and so that that kind of gives you a clue. But I, I think knowing who the filmmakers are is important. You know, So I'm pro-choice, for example. I made a film about abortion providers. I don't pretend I'm not pro-choice. But what I try and do is show you as a viewer what I saw in an honest way. You know, another thing you can see is like, uh, how do the subjects feel about what was shown? They don't always like it, but do they think it was misrepresented or unfair? Um, And so, you know, as filmmakers, it really, really is our obligation to, um, to try and be as fair as possible, particularly the people that we don't agree with. Because I'm not afraid of like somebody else's political opinion. And I do not believe that I have all the answers to anything. And so like, what's worth doing if it's not worth challenging yourself? I'm not interested in 
just living in an echo chamber. I even try and watch Fox News as long as I can stand it to just see what other people are saying. But you got to kick the tires on your own opinions to make sure that you don't fall into traps that I think, you know, some political conservatives have fallen into that. I, I think they're it's they're dangerous. It's dangerous to not question yourself. What happens if you're doing an interview and someone says something and you actually have footage that shows they're lying? Do you put the footage before what they're saying or do you do it after? Um, it, it depends. You know, I think if you know it before you go in, that's one thing. Like you should show it to them and say, do you want to comment on that? Do you want to explain this? If you don't know it, before you go in, which happens a lot, you know, we'll do an interview and then we'll go look for footage to kind of, you know, describe. Sometimes it's a simple mistake. Somebody's memory is faded, but sometimes it's an intentional misrepresentation. As a journalist, your obligation is to go back and ask them if they want to comment. So, you know, if that happens, you know, that's, that's kind of what you should do. But I think what you're pointing to is how important it is where you can to show the original footage. So in, in Deadlock, for example, we have Mitch McConnell very clearly saying after the Bork hearings, you know, he's going to shoot down any democratically nominated, uh, any, any judicial, you know, justices nominated by Democrats. That's what he says. That's not what I said. That's what he says. And then that's what he does. <laughs> For Deadlocked, well, let me ask you this about both Deadlocked and Lady Bird. As you were doing your research, as you were creating, in both cases, what did you find that was most surprising that you didn't actually know? Um, so many things. So for I'll start with Deadlocked. For example, I assumed all Supreme Court justices had to have confirmation hearings, when in fact, Earl Warren had no confirmation hearing. He was promised the job. It was kind of a political payoff. And when it came time, when an opening came available, it was in the chief justice spot. So Earl Warren was the governor of California and gets to be the chief justice of the United States. So I guess affirmative action is good for some people, just not for others. You know, and it wasn't clear that Warren was going to be the liberal lion that he ended up being. He had signed the intern, you know, the the uh, order allowing the interning of Japanese Americans. So this was not an area Supreme Court justice. You could, you just need to be appointed by the nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. So you know, I think that that's interesting because I think we all tend to think we're getting the best and the brightest. We're getting the perfect legal minds when actually you're getting who the president wants you to get. And so it's the Senate's job to kick the tires on that nominee, to actually ask the hard questions to make sure that that person is up to the job. So um, that was that was really interesting to me. I also didn't know that Nixon had four appointees to the court. And we think of when we think about the court's rightward shift, well, that makes a lot more sense now, doesn't it? You know, um, not all of those appointees ended up being the conservative lions that they wanted. Um, but that was the intent. And that was what he was trying to do. So, you know, today when we're saying like, this is shocking that such conservatives are appointed to the court. Well, 
that's always been the playbook. It just hasn't worked before. Um, the justices haven't actually. And I think that's largely um, due to the fact that we now have the Federalist Society. So we have a whole privately funded entity that is kicking the tires on these justices. And, you know, their mantra is no more suitors, no more O'Connors, no more Blackmans, no more people who we think are conservatives, but they're actually not going to vote the way we want. Not the way the law requires or the country wants, but the way that we ideological conservatives want. So, you know, those are a couple of things. For Lady Bird, Johnson's depression and the idea that he was going to resign and that she wrote his resignation speech and that he was going to deliver it on live television during the State of the Union. Can you imagine if Joe Biden resigned during the State of the Union speech? I mean, we would lose our minds. Um, But Johnson had suffered from such severe depression, in part because of Vietnam, in part because of what he felt he was, he had no choice but to do. Of course, he did have a choice. He felt he had no choice. So that was a pretty shocking discovery. I think also just Lady Bird herself was a revelation. I hadn't really thought about Lady Bird one way or the other. And I had done a four-part series about Bobby Kennedy, where she was the first lady during the Johnson administration. I had done this film about John Lewis. I had done other films about that era. And so that said a lot, that even as a filmmaker who would comb through probably a thousand hours of footage all told through all these different projects that I didn't think about Lady Bird's role in the White House. I didn't think about it at all. And so I thought, well, if I didn't think about it and I'm studying this period, then, you know, can I blame Robert Caro for not thinking about it? Can I blame, you know, so many other historians for not really giving her, her, her due. Um, And so to your point, Part of what the film does, I think, is add to the record. It's not correct the record, but it's add to what we know and then make us think, what else are we missing right now that's right in front of us? What should we be looking for? As a former litigator, what does your background and your work as a litigator, how does that impact the decisions you make as a filmmaker? You know, I started, my first film was about three public defenders and that I was drawn to them because I thought, oh, I can help explain what they're going through and and maybe help people see how important they are. And then a lot of my work deals with legal issues, deals with, uh, so abortion, the Supreme Court, like battle over abortion rights, um, our battle in the States. So a lot of my work does kind of touch on legal themes, but really like the law is everywhere. (laughs) You know, if you're going to talk about what you can and can't do and what, you know, you know, the law requires either at state or federal level, like it's everywhere. And so that background, just that understanding that the law is so inimitably wound up with our being, I think influences me. And then there's a very practical side to it, which is as a litigator, I took a lot of depositions. And when you take depositions, you listen to people. And so like, I don't shoot, I don't edit. You know, I always say like, I don't do anything useful. (laughs) Um, 
but I can listen, you know, and, and I think as a litigator, what you're trained to do is take something complicated and make it comprehensible. And that's really what we do as storytellers. I think the difference is as a litigator, you're an advocate, you're pushing your, your perspective for a client. And as a filmmaker, I think what you should be doing is thinking about what is true to the best that you can determine it. You know, that's what I think my job is, is I have my biases. I make no apologies for them, but everything I tell you is true to the extent that I can, I can tell it to you to the extent that I've been able to discover it. You've been listening to an interview with documentary filmmaker Dawn Porter Gideon's Army can be found on the free Tubi app. Deadlock can be found on Showtime Paramount Plus starting September 23rd. And John Lewis' Good Trouble is available at Amazon Prime. Other Dawn Porter documentaries can be rented through Apple Plus. Dawn Porter will be appearing live at Berkeley Art Museum Pacific Film Archive September 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. You can find out more by going to bampfa.org. Special thanks to A.J. Fox and the folks at Berkeley Art Museum Pacific Film Archive for their assistance in organizing this interview. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.